You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 122 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Labour's proposed tax and super changes make a long list. The three most prominent changes proposed by Labour are that there would no longer be a refund of excess franking credits, no negative gearing against pay-as-you-go income, and the CGT discount would go down to 25%. And these three changes is what we will talk about in this episode. But before we do this, I wanted to quickly give you a feel for the other changes proposed by Labour that might affect you as well. There are seven changes to superannuation Labour proposes. Half of these are to make it harder for you to get money into super or to pay more tax when you do. The first change is that the non-concessional contribution cap would decrease once more from 100,000 to 75,000. It just decreased from 180,000 to 100,000 two years ago, but Labour wants to decrease it once more from 100,000 to 75,000. The second change is that Labour wants to eliminate the optional carry-forward of unused concessional cap space. So if you don't use up the entire 25,000 concessional cap space in a year, they don't want you to be able to carry forward that cap space to a future year. At the moment you can do that, but you would no longer be able to do that under Labour. The third change is that Labour wants to bring the work test back for concessional contributions. So if they achieve this, then you can't make concessional contributions unless you pass the 10% work test. The fourth change is that the Division 293 threshold would reduce to $200,000. It just reduced from $300,000 to $250,000, but Labour wants to reduce it once more from $250,000 to $200,000. So if you make any concessional contributions and exceed that threshold, you pay 30% contribution tax and not just 15%. Of course, it's not tax that way, it's still 15% tax in the fund and you then pay an additional Division 293 payment, but in the end your contributions are taxed at 30%. The fifth change is that Labour wants to ban LRBAs entirely and the argument is that they want you to pursue a non-geared investment strategy and not gear within super. The second last change is that at the moment the superannuation guarantee is scheduled to hit 12% in July 2025 and Labour wants to get there earlier. They don't have a clear timetable yet, but they have the intention of getting there earlier. And the last change to super is that Labour wants everybody to get super, not just people earning more than $450 per month. So this policy is to support people at the very bottom of the earning scale people in part-time or casual jobs, often working multiple jobs, each earning less than $450 per month. So under labor, all these would be entitled to super as well. So these are the seven changes to super. Then there are quite a few changes to tax and three of these we will discuss more in this episode, which is the ban on negative gearing, the reduction of the CGT discount and the abolition of the refund of franking credits. But there are more tax changes. There are actually two very important ones. The first one is that Labour proposes a standard minimum 30% tax rate 
for discretionary trust distributions to adult beneficiaries. So there is already there are already special rules around discretionary trust distributions to minors under Division 6AA, but Labour now also wants to bring a minimum 30% tax rate for any trust distributions from discretionary trust to adult beneficiaries, so beneficiaries over the age of 18. The other important change is that Labour wants to increase the top marginal tax rate from 47% to 49%. So when you add the 2% Medicare levy, you basically get to an effective marginal tax rate to 51%. So if Labour comes through with this proposal, anybody earning more than $180,000 would pay more tax on any excess over $180,000 would pay more tax than they take home. Labour proposes a cap on the deduction for managing tax affairs and they want this cap to be $3,000. And as the final tax change is that Labour wants to introduce a 20% capital allowance write-off in the first year. They call this the Australian Investment Guarantee, AIG. And this AIG would start from the 1st of July 2021. And then there are six changes to tax administration that Labour is proposing. And the first one is to extend the protection of whistleblowers whistleblowers who report tax evading entities to the ATO. But Labour actually goes beyond just protecting whistleblowers. They actually want to reward whistleblowers and quite substantially reward them with rewards of up to $250,000 being a share of any tax penalties charged. So somebody disclosing a tax evasion scheme to the ATO could walk away with a quarter of a million dollars under Labour's proposal. The second proposal that Labour has brought forward is that of a second commission of taxation. So Labour wants to achieve a clearer separation within the ATO between ATO officials making tax assessments from officials handling disputes and appeals. So this new second commissioner would be the head of a new appeals area within the ATO. The third proposal from Labour is that to appoint a community representative to the Board of Taxation. And this one took me a little bit by surprise because the Board of Taxation is already in itself meant to be a community representative advising the government on tax policy. So specifically appointing a community representative to the Board of Taxation is Interesting, But anyway, that's what Labour is proposing. They want one of those 11 board members to be a community sector representative. The fourth initiative is that the ATO should publish the number and size of tax settlements each year and also report on any aggressive tax minimization schemes they've come across in its annual report. The fifth initiative is to increase the penalties for the promotion of tax evasion schemes. And then there is also a proposal to fund 10 free tax clinics to help low-income taxpayers and micro-businesses with administrative tax matters. But this is quite similar to the um, initiative that Liberal already has in the pipeline. So I think there are some minor differences here and there around the edges, but the um, the gist, I think, is the same between the, both parties. So that's all about tax administration, and now we come to international tax. 
Most of the proposed changes to international tax affect multinationals, but there are two changes I wanted to talk to you in more detail about. The first one is that Labour wants to see a compulsory disclosure of residency and citizenship of every taxpayer. And I think the reason behind that is that it will be much easier for the ATO to target the data matching if they know if they know that somebody is a resident or citizen of another country. Because if they are a resident or citizen of another country, if somebody is a resident or citizen of another country and they have assets overseas, there is a high chance that the assets are in that particular country. So the ATO could target the data matching accordingly. The second initiative that Labour is proposing is to deny tax deductions for travel to tax havens. And I, when I first read that, I thought that was very odd for three reasons. And But then as I thought more about it, I thought maybe I just don't have any idea and are terribly naive. But the first reason I thought this was odd was that if you have substantial assets in a tax haven, the last thing you would do is tell the ATO that you traveled to that tax haven three times last year, basically telling the ATO where your assets are. The second reason um, that I first thought that it was odd, but then I thought oh, maybe I just don't have any idea. The second reason is that I thought nobody flies to uh, oh, let, let me say that differently. I thought most people who have substantial assets in a tax haven would never have been to that tax haven. Most, uh, most, most money is transferred electronically. When you think of buy water, there, nobody got on a plane with a million dollars. It was all done through international bank transfers, etc. But then I thought, oh, maybe I'm just completely naive because if you are in a drug cartel or in a substantial cash business, maybe you would bring a million dollars or two million dollar bags to to a tax haven. So yes, so maybe there would be travel expenses. And then the third reason I thought this initiative was odd was that if you if you don't disclose income because you have it hidden in a tax haven, then you wouldn't be entitled to a tax, tax deduction anyway because that tax deduction is not in connection with deriving accessible income. But anyway, that is Labour's proposal to deny any tax deduction for travel to tax havens. The other proposals very much affect multinationals. And the first one is to tighten the sin capitalization rules, so to reduce the number of tests within the sin capitalization rules to only keep the worldwide gearing ratio as the test to ascertain whether you can tax deduct certain interest deductions or not. The uh, second one is to tighten the MEC group rules. MEC stands for Multiple Entry Consolidated Groups, and the initiative is basically to put local corporate groups on an easy on on, a, on the same footing as MECs then labor wants to decrease the tax transparency threshold to 100 million it's currently 200 million and the initiative and the reason behind that is that large private firms should yeah, face the same reporting thresholds as public companies. Labour wants to see the public disclosure of CBC reports. CBC is country by country reports. And so that the public can see how much tax every significant global entity paid around the globe. So basically to see where does Apple and Google and similar companies actually pay any tax. Then Labour also wants companies to disclose any tax haven exposure to shareholders. They want 
any actually this might also be interesting for our clients any any firm tendering for a government contract worth more than $200,000 needs to state their country of domicile for tax purposes. And then Labour also wants to see more abstract cash flow data publicly disclosed. And to enforce all this, Labour wants to give the ATO an additional $50 million so that they have the guns and the resources to enforce all these multinational tax compliance rules. And then one last initiative that is worth mentioning that doesn't really fit into any of these other categories that we went through is that Labour wants to establish a publicly accessible central registry of listed companies and trusts in Australia. And so to make it easier to trace beneficial ownership and to just enhance transparency. So these are just some of the proposed changes. There's a lot more. But back to the three most prominent tax changes regarding property and franking credits. I asked Gordon McKenzie of UNSW whether he could talk to us about these and he kindly said yes. So here's Gordon. The Labour Party changes, they're problematic from a number of perspectives. The starting point is that with imputation credits, the taxpayer should pay their margin rate of tax on the corporate dividend. So if they get a credit for the taxes paid by the corporate, that's fine. If you've got a zero tax rate, if that's your marginal tax rate, like a super fund paying a pension, then that's a rate of tax you should pay. Having been at the other end of the spectrum in superannuation, billion dollar superannuation funds, they're just going to arbitrage it. So they will claim the full credit on a taxable fund and then through the accounts, they will give the benefit of that credit to the pension fund. For large super funds, so industry and retail funds, the way that they run their funds is they'll have separate asset classes supporting a pension, separate asset classes supporting accumulation. And the and they only have one tax bill. The credits will be claimed on the accumulation members and then they'll share that through the accounts with the pension members. There's some other strategies that we've seen for SMSFs, and that is that if you're comfortable with it, and it can create dynamic problems, but you bring in other members who are in accumulation phase so that they will have taxable funds that can then absorb the imputation credits. So that means for mum and dad funds in pension mode, the solution could be to bring the children in. Precisely. That's a suggestion, that it's the mum and dad funds will bring their children in because they'll be in accumulation mode and then the fund as a whole can claim the credits and then share that value of that with the, the pensioner members. Interesting concept because the question is whether tax actually drives that structure or whether you should drive your SMSF on non-tax considerations, such as do you have two different generations within a self-money super fund? Different risk profiles. Risk profiles. They have different investment risks, so the younger people have got more risk. Mature age people should theoretically reduce their risk as they go into retirement. I mean, it's kind of work we do a lot of in terms of tax arbitrage in personal investing. The starting point is that the tax system should not direct you about where you invest. The fact of the matter is that the tax system does direct where you invest. Two classic examples are imputation credits and negative gearing. We wanted to discuss negative gearing and happy to do that. The point of that is we are talking to Australian Treasury last year about doing some research on that, and that is identifying 
the tax arbitrage opportunities in the current system. In other words, if you do something this way, you get a tax outcome, then you do it that way. The whole of the financial planning system is largely based on tax arbitrage. and You're looking at investing this way rather than investing that way to get a tax outcome. It's an interesting concept that tax shouldn't be your motivation for one investment decision or another. But at the same time, the legislator uses tax to change behavior. Because the negative gearing, as you mentioned negative gearing, this very concessional tax treatment at the moment was introduced to help the property market many decades ago. Yeah, precisely. I mean, we're the only country in the world that allows taxpayers to offset their investment losses against any other class of income. But it used to be ourselves, New Zealand and Japan, and I think we're the last person standing. If you have a look at what they did in the UK, uh, they're not proposing to do this here, but in the UK, your annual investment losses can only be offset against the gain from the asset. So you carry them forward. That's very strict. So it's not even by asset class, but by actual asset. That's very strict. It is very strict. We don't have that. We have a system here where you can offset your annual investment losses against any other class of income. And I see that Labor are actually proposing to prevent that. And they say, well, you can only offset your investment losses against investment gains or investment positive geared investments. You can't offset it against salary and wages income. All that will mean is it's only wealthy people that will be able to negatively gear because they're the only people that have got multiple properties around. I don't know. I mean, when you look at negative gearing, the theory is that most properties are only negatively geared for seven years. After seven years, they turn positive. They turn tax positive. In other words, the income that the asset is generating will more than offset expenses. Is that possible? Because that would mean there are no negatively geared properties left. I mean, it only applies to that individual investor, the seven-year period you're talking about, because otherwise the entire nation of Australia would no longer be negatively geared if it was seven years per property. So it's seven years per investor. Good question. But yeah, that's the theory. The theory is that the majority of properties are only negatively geared for seven years. Theoretically, do you want to negatively gear a property indefinitely? Because although you're getting deductible offsets... You're still making a loss. Your expenses are 100% and whatever your marginal tax rate is going to reduce the value of that. But ultimately, you want the assets to turn positively. What Labor is proposing is interesting to quarantine existing assets. just means people will be more reluctant to trade them. It's like capital gains. That There's a thing that the economists call, I can't remember what it's called, but if you pay tax on realisation, then you're less incentivized to realise the, the value of the property. It's called, it's called a lock-in effect. If you pay tax on an accumulated value, then you would be indifferent about when you dispose of it. But if you pay tax when you dispose of it, and the economists called it the lock-in effect. So you've got to guess that if we quarantine those assets which are currently negative and geared, then the people that own them are going to be reluctant to dispose of them because they won't be able to negatively gear into a new asset. What I'm saying is that if Labor get their proposal up, what they're proposing is that they will change the tax laws to say that those people who already have a negatively geared asset continue to negatively gear it, but there are restrictions on negatively geared assets going forward. Predominantly, it will only be new assets, new properties. You won't be able to offset your investment losses against any other class of income. And they're also proposing to reduce the capital gains tax discount to 25%. What I'm suggesting is that if they make that move, then the quarantined assets, people are just going to be... Yes, sitting on them. Because of the lock-in effect. If I dispose of it, then I'm going to cop a tax bill 
and I'm not going to be able to negatively gear. They're interesting proposals. The reason I know this is because in our master's course, one of the research papers that we get students to do is, should Australia continue to permit negatively geared assets? And they all go back to 1982 or 83, I can't remember what it was, uh, when Paul Keating was treasurer, and they prevented negative gearing. And what happened then, it was a much broader proposition that, that's currently being proposed, was that the property market just dried up. So that lasted for two years, but developers stopped developing property. At that time, I think the only asset class that you couldn't negatively gear was real property. So the property developers just stopped building apartments. Whether that happens again, I don't know. The theory behind the 50% discount is that when they introduced CGT, they said, look, we're going to tax your gain on an asset, but we're not going to tax inflation. So the discount was to not tax inflation. So what they used to do was inflate the value of the property by the CPI. And that was very tedious. Well, it kept a lot of economists employed, and as much as we like economists. But yeah, it was very tedious, is a good word. And in 1999, they said, look, what we'll do is we'll just give everybody a 50% discount. Now, inflation was a bit higher then than it was now, but who knows, it might pop up. The other reason that you get a discount on the capital gain is the thing called bunching. That if you only pay tax when you realise it, that means that all the income is going to come in the year when you realise it, and because we've got progressive rates of tax, you can actually pay more tax than if you accumulated over the period. So the discount compensates people for those two things. Inflation, which is not such a big issue, but also a thing called bunching. 50% seemed reasonable in terms of international comparators. We're probably ahead of the game on that. I don't know if you wanted to talk about this, about the tax concessions in superannuation, but when you compare the way that superannuation is taxed with the way that a capital gain is taxed, not necessarily negatively geared, the maximum rate of tax you pay on a capital gain is half the highest marginal rate, which is currently 22.5%. And a couple of other points, you only pay that tax on a capital gain when you realise it, and you can choose when to do that. I mean, there might be market forces that drive it, but it's your choice, which means that you can actually realise a capital gain when your other income and your your marginal tax rate is low. So uh, tax on capital gains is pretty generous. And when you compare that to superannuation, when they changed the superannuation rates in 1988, we have what's called an EET system, no tax on contributions, no tax on annual income, all the taxes were on benefit payments. Now, the majority of countries in the world use that system for taxing their retirement funding. It's called EET, exempt contributions, exempt income, all the taxes on benefits. It's also called a consumption basis because you only pay tax on your retirement assets when you start to consume them at retirement. Okay. Again, the majority of countries in the world use that. The benefits are obvious, you get deferral of tax. The other less used taxing system is called a TTE system, tax on contributions, tax on earnings, and exempt tax and benefits. The US uses that system. Well, the US actually uses two systems, depending on which fund you use. Now, that's called an income tax basis because you're paying tax on the contributions in the year they contributed, you're paying tax on the earnings of the fund, and the benefits are exempt. And that's what we have. We have a TTE system. Well, you could argue that. Over age 60, we do have a TTE system. Precisely, okay. Because over age 60, for a taxed fund, the only taxes you will pay are 15% on contributions, 15% on annual earnings, and then no taxes on the benefits. And we've got one of the most complicated 
retirement income systems, taxations and regulations in the world. Again, I'm not complaining. It's kept me employed for a long time. If we've got agreement that the way that superannuation is taxed in Australia is 15% on contributions, 15% on earnings, and then zero on benefits after age 60, that means that the rate of tax you pay in your retirement income is 15%, because the benefit that comes out is simply contributions plus the earnings, less expenses. Now, when you compare that superannuation system with a flat 15%, ignoring the fact that it's locked in and you can't get hold of it until conditions of release are met, with the way that we tax capital gains, where the maximum rate of tax is 22.5%, you can choose when you want to pay the tax so you can actually get that rate down and you don't pay tax until you realise the event. Mm. You've got to argue that our superannuation system is not all that generous, not all that generous at all. Where do you get the 22.5%? The 50% of the highest marginal tax rate. Okay. So 50% of 45? I'm okay. ignoring, yeah. I'm ignoring yeah. the levies. Okay. Yeah. If you add the levies in, it's 50% of 23.5%. Yeah, yeah. The point I was making is, to a large degree, we're the envy of the world because we've got a compulsory superannuation system. The Americans wouldn't have a bar of it. When I did some research a couple of years ago with Professor John Foreman out of Oklahoma University, he said... There's no way known that American citizens would permit the government to tell them what to do with 9.5% of their salary. Okay. We're lucky in one way you look at it because we've got... The government has said, look, we're going to quarantine 9.5% of salary and you can only use that when you get to retirement. But the point of that is that query whether the tax concessions that they give you for doing that, in other words, deferring using 9.5% of your salary, the tax concessions are generous. And my argument is that they're not. It's a flat 15% up front. When you compare it to negative gearing, it doesn't look generous at all. And this problem has been resolved. But if your marginal tax rate was 15% or less, then contributing money to a superannuation fund was actually a penalty. They will give you a tax offset from the 1st of July 2007. Prior to that, was a contribution. Through the government co-contribution? Yep, through the government co-contribution. If your income is less than 37000 in other words, if your income is less than 15%. So they, they do compensate you for that. But if you speak to financial planning people and, and debt economists, for young people anyway, they're far better off putting that money towards a house or other capital assets so that they don't pay interest than locking it away in a superannuation fund. Mm. Hence now the new initiative to allow First home buyer incentive scheme or something? Yeah, they had a go at that a couple of years ago, and this is their second attempt at it. The deal there is that you can withdraw up to $30,000 of your contributions if you're using it to buy your first home. My guess is, and it could be the cynic in me, that it will be only the children of wealthy parents that will use that. So their parents will give them money. Now that all individuals can claim a tax deduction, they'll put it into their super fund. They're going to buy a house eventually, so they'll pull the thirty grand out and then use it to buy the superannuation fund. The reason I say that is because the majority of young people simply don't have the disposable income to lock it into a super fund. So it's a nice incentive and it's trying to resolve this perpetual problem which everybody has and that is are you better off buying capital assets like your house or putting your money away into a super fund? And the theory is that for young people anyway, they're better off getting rid of their mortgage as quickly as they can. In fact, you speak to financial planners and they tell you that the majority of people do not start to accumulate money in a super fund until the late 40s. They're certainly the compulsory super will go in, but they don't... Yeah, they don't have the disposable income. Precisely. They don't have... Exactly. They've got school fees, they've got cars, they've got houses to buy. And to be honest, they're far better off doing that 
than locking the money away a super fund. Again, people say, well, look, the longer you have the money invested, the, the compounding is good. But the fact of the matter is financial planners will tell you the majority of taxpayers don't start. Mm-hmm. They don't have the discretionary income, yeah. as you say. And mortgages also have compounding interest. And mortgages have compounding interest as well. So you, you're better off getting get rid of your mortgage. And if you're going on a principal and interest, then even more so. Mm-hmm. So we've got, we've got an interesting uh, superannuation system. But then again, the fourth largest accumulation in superannuation in the world, got $2.3 trillion in superannuation. Mm-hmm. And we've got a longevity problem. I heard the other day that, and this took my breath away, because I thought life expectancy at 65 was 28, was 81 for female and 79 for male. But somebody told me, one of the actuary mates told me the other day that life expectancy at 65 is now 87 for a female, 85. So you've got 22 years, 20 years in retirement. You do need a reasonable accumulation to manage that. With the negative gearing, there are a number of sub-proposals there. They're going to quarantine existing assets. You can't offset the loss against any other income. So, as I said, that would suggest that it's only the wealthy with multiple assets that will get the benefit of that. And it is interesting when you see the statistics of who negatively gears, and this came out a couple of years ago, that the majority of people are just salary and wage earners. I didn't understand that. Most of them are? Yeah, most of them are. The majority of people who negatively year are salary and wage earners. Oh, I see. Now, th- that could be explained from a number of aspects, and, and that is that that may be the only asset class, the real estate is the only asset class that they understand. In fact, when we do our SMSF specialisation course, some of the practitioners tell us that they have clients who will not invest in anything they can't drive past. So I hesitated and said, they won't invest in anything they can't drive past? He said, oh, they, they will only invest in property in their area. Because they understand that asset class and that's all they will invest in. Yeah. Because they understand their suburb. Exactly, yeah. Intuitively, that's not hard to understand. If you're not in investment markets and you don't understand the different asset classes, and the only asset class you understand because it's the only asset you invested in was probably... But it also makes practical sense. I agree with you. And I think that's probably the reason they do it, which leads on to something else if it's of interest to you. And that is that when we set up the SMSF specialisation for first chartered accountants and then we work for CPA Australia. Coming out of corporate taxation, I thought, this is going to be great. We're going to do some really interesting, really interesting tax plays. We'll use the current pension exemption. We'll nominate assets as being in the pension phase and dispose of them, realise the gain and then... Segregate. Segregate them, yeah. And I thought, we're going to have really good fun because we're doing it all over Australia. We have 20 really experienced people in the room and we can dream up all these plans. The practitioners were not interested in it all. And it took me a while to understand why. And I said, look, come on, let's, come on, let's have some fun with these tax rules. There's all these tax opportunities. And I said, well, why? Interesting. Well, first of all, their clients don't want to pay them to have a fight with the ATR. And secondly, their clients just want to sleep in bed at night. I've never seen such a conservative group of tax people. Having said that, I used to work at the other end of the spectrum and see some pretty aggressive tax players. And it surprised me uh, when one of the other players in the superannuation industry started to accuse the self-managed super funds of being tax avoiders. Now, there might be, at the end of the spectrum, there might be some players that do that, but the majority of people, and we saw a lot of practitioners, they were very conservative on tax. Very bread and butter and just straightforward. Exactly, yeah. And if there's any concern, we'll go to the ATO and we'll just have a chat with them. Of course, you've got the auditor as well sitting over your shoulder, and if you do anything cute, the auditor's going to say, well, could you explain to me what you've done there? 
when we started that program, we thought, oh, this is going to be great. I have 25 really experienced people in the room and we can do all these plays with exempt income and segregate assets and everything. Not interested at all. Not interested at all. Welcome back. I forgot to ask Gordon about the exemptions to these proposals. So let's quickly run through these and start with the franking credit refund. Recipients of an Australian pension or allowance and any SMSF with at least one such member as of 28th of March 2018, as well as charities and not-for-profit institutions, would still be able to receive refunds of franking credits. So that is an exemption. But the exemption for SMSFs would be a very short-lived one because the exemption only applies if the SMSF has a member on 28th of March 2018 who is a recipient. If somebody qualifies for the age pension or any other pension or allowance after that date, their SMSF is no longer exempt. So in the long run, no SMSF will qualify for a refund. The ban on negative gearing won't apply to newly constructed housing and also not to current investments you already hold. So it will be grandfathered. The negative gearing routes will be grandfathered. And the reduction of the CGT discount would, at this stage, only apply to individuals and trusts, but not to super funds. But I can imagine that is not long off until that changes as well. So these are the exemptions as they currently stand. In the next episode, episode 123, Gordon McKenzie will talk about death benefits. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>